0: issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
1: And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage.
0: Uh, Okay, so how do you go about writing, Sugi, when the uh, end of the world is on the way?
1: How do you? I mean, I sort of feel like that's the entire point of our podcast. I get to talk to you every two weeks about like... How do we go on, Whitney? Um, I've always felt like the end of the world is closer than I'd like. And I'll admit that having Scott Pruitt at the helm of the EPA recently didn't exactly improve my outlook. I feel like the the saying, don't let the door hit you in the way out, was pretty much made for that guy.
0: Yeah, and not to let that guy off the hook, but a lot of the environmental concerns today predate him. Uh, And this week, on the heels of finding out more about Trump's affordable clean energy plan, we're going to talk about climate change and we have two wonderful writers here to join us. Poet, professor, and activist, Juliana Spahr is gonna to talk to us about her work and about ecopoetics.
1: And before that, we'll be joined by novelist and journalist, Nathaniel Rich, whose recent New York Times Magazine story about climate change was the whole damn issue of the magazine. Nathaniel, the author of three novels and a book of nonfiction, has written for Harper's, The Atlantic, The New York Review of Books, and many other publications.
0: In 2013, his second novel, Odds Against Tomorrow, featuring a storm named Tammy, was in Final Proofs when Hurricane Sandy hit. With that book, he imagined a disaster forecaster and an alternative future. With this Times article, he looks back and argues that we could have arrested climate change between 1979 and 1989. We're excited to have him here to discuss his story, Losing Earth, the Decade We Almost Stopped Climate Change. Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Hello.
2: Good to join you.
1: So uh, the central thesis of the Times article is that from 1979 to 1989, we had a good chance to solve the climate crisis. One of the things that surprised me was that we knew so early that carbon emissions were going to cause climate change. And you write, uh, quote, nearly everything we understand about global warming was understood in 1979 and that Republicans and Democrats agreed on that. And I was wondering whether you were surprised by that.
2: I mean, what really surprised me the the most was the that the fact that every single conversation we have today in 2018 about climate change was being held nearly verbatim uh, by 1980, Uh, you know, not not only at the highest levels of government, but in the popular media, um, within industry, uh, and the scientific community, of course. And so I I don't only mean the predictions about how many degrees of warming we'd have and the consequences for sea level or natural disasters and geopolitical, tensions, but also conversations about the need to create uh, international funds to help developing nations continue to increase their energy consumption without resorting to you know, massive new extraction of coal.
1: And the article has this intense cast of characters, the people who figure this out. You know, there's the Jasons. And I know this is a slight sidetrack, but... I mean, who the heck are these guys? And and while you're at it, could you talk to us just a little bit about the articles, opening characters, Rafe Pomerance and Gordon McDonald, and sort of how you came to write about these particular people having that set of conversations?
2: There's a great book I would recommend um, by Anne Finkbeiner. About them called the Jasons, with a long subtitle, uh, and she was very helpful with, with research, I should say. But um, essentially, there's this this class of they 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 were a, a smaller subgroup of a larger class of of scientists, sort of elder scientists who had enormous influence within the U.S. government, beginning uh, really with the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. uh, and were these this kind of priestly. Class it's who so advised, bizarre to me. yeah, it's very bizarre, especially given how far away you know we are from that, and in in the views that politicians, especially Republican politicians, have for um, science uh, or truth, truth. I guess you could expand it, um, but yeah, basically they were advised. They advised every president on 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 issues of any 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 major issues of national national security, economics. Um, and certainly environment, they started to worry about climate change at the end of the 70s. But they weren't alone. I mean, there were plenty of other people within the government. Um, and and then, you, but what, what changes in 1979 is that you have the beginning of an awakening um, from the community of people who actually write policy or, or, or push to create policy on Capitol Hill. So Rafe Pomerance is one of the, the central figures in the piece. He's a a political lobbyist, a kind of DC insider who's been working on the Clean Air Act for uh, Friends of the Earth environmental group during the seventies, and he becomes aware of the problem, and he resolves to, to try to you know raise alarms about it on Capitol Hill, and and he goes along with Gordon McDonald, this Jason who's who's starting to talk about the issue publicly, and they try to raise awareness. Um, Jim Hansen, a NASA scientist. Also, in this period, begins to move from essentially pure science to to beginning a step in the direction of policy and to start suggesting, including in his scientific papers, that something needs to be done there are policy ramifications of this of this global warming problem, and that actions needs to be taken.
0: The Jasons, like they were the first people, though, who s- they they said, like, okay, we think carbon dioxide is going to double by what twenty thirty five or something like that, and this is going to be the mm-hmm. result, uh, and that was what uh, Pomerantz saw, if I remember well. Right.
2: They they were the, the, because they they had this position of of such great prominence um, and respect within the the sort of DC establishment, the political establishment. They were. Taken very seriously. I just
0: imagine like, them sitting around in like hoods, and there's like a, a crystal ball, and they're 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 wearing sort of velvety things, and then they figure this out, and then they descend from some gothic mansion in DC and tell people. But I, I suppose it's probably not. I like
2: think that. it was more shirt <laughs> shirt sleeves uh, in the summer in Boulder as a. Uh, National, the, the Scientific Center for Monitoring the Atmosphere. But yeah, I mean, you know, they they, they did do some crazy, I mean, they built their own cl- climate model, so this extremely advanced computer program that only a few people at the time were running, uh, including Jim Hansen. They created their own kind of rudimentary model from scratch to test out these various hypotheses. But the science itself, they didn't, They you know, they, they tried to pinpoint the amount of warming that would occur once CO2 doubled in the atmosphere, which they felt was inevitable based on the the rate of, of, you know, fossil fuel emissions. Um, And it, you know, they confirmed basically a lot of the science that had come before it. And then the Jason report um, led the white house through, through an intercession from Rafe Pomerantz and, and uh, Gordon McDonald to commission a, a sort of even higher level, if that's possible report, by this group run by Joel Charney, who's a sort of invented modern weather uh, meteorology, <laughs> um, and he he assembled this other group of sort of all all star elite scientists to test the Jason's results, and they confirmed it uh, with a, with a greater degree of of accuracy. and And that is the moment in, in 1979 when the science crystallized. Uh, and And I, I interviewed uh, Ken Caldera, who's a very prominent. Um, climate scientist at at Stanford. And he told me that every year he asks graduates, his graduate students, the beginning of the semester, you know, what's, what's the major, what are the major changes in the fundamental science of climate change since the Trini report? And it's a trick question because there basically haven't been.
0: (laughs) I remember that part from the article. It's so frustrating.
2: So it's like, we get data that replaces, you know, projections. We get we get better, more specific models. We get better regional information and all that stuff. So we fill in some of the, the lines, but the the outline is all there uh, and in, in pretty stark uh, relief by 1979.
1: I was listening to you talk about this in, in some other places, and, and you spent you know two years doing the reporting for this piece, which sort of began with this what I understand was a fairly broad mandate from the Pulitzer Center and from your editors. And and then you narrowed things all the way down to these very specific characters, these very specific conversations, this very specific time. And when I think about climate change, I think probably, I hope like a lot of other people, but also maybe we can get over this. I feel overwhelmed by this, the sheer amount of information. And to translate this science um, into things that connect with people, and to narrow it down to this period, how much work did that take? How did you reach the idea that these were the people that you wanted to write about? When you, It seems like you could have written about so many other things.
2: Yeah, I mean, it actually, <clears throat> those two things are very much connected. I mean, I, I feel like, yes, the, the the subject is enormous and, and complex and all of that. Um, however, the way we've been talking about the subject and also the basic terms of it, the paralysis that that's mm-hmm. set in, really by 1990, um, essentially when the peace ends. Um, That has largely not changed too significantly. I mean, you've seen beginning in 1989, 1990, industry, oil and gas industry closes ranks. They start... The the beginning of what will become a massive disinformation campaign, propaganda campaign, buying off scientists, buying off politicians, buying off the Republican Party, the Republican Party itself closes ranks to the point where it embraces this this sort of clownish fantasy of of denialism. Um, And that continues to this day. Of course, now the party is even beyond the industry in its public statements about the matter. They're more uh, (laughs) radical Uh, in the the, the, you know, the, the axon doesn't dare deny climate change anymore um publicly so uh you know and then you've had this sort of environmental groups have been working on the issue very diligently since then and the technology has continued so in some ways i mean certainly there have been huge advances and and i think political opinion has been changing especially more recently and you have these sort of toothless treaties that have come up every number of years through the ipcc process but the basic narrative the terms of the narrative has have really been set uh for about 30 years, uh, which is maybe part of why it feels somewhat overwhelming that it seems like it's, this is stasis. Um, so what going back before this period, um, allowed, allowed was, was, uh, to, to kind of go, go further and go beneath those, the political fight and the, and the, the industry story into what I hoped would be a broader human story about how our species is dealing with this existential threat. So it was very important for me to keep it within the period to write it as a historical narrative, so that you don't have the voice of the present coming in and saying, you know, little did they know that this would all be not, you know, (laughs) anything like that, or Exxon would soon develop, you know, and and so that's that's a testament also to the dedication of the times to to staying with this vision. But I also felt narratively that you would lose the entire thing; you would essentially. crush the dramatic tension if, if you if you ever departed from the period. So then once I had the we had the period, it was a matter of figuring out what are the crucial milestones, what are the events and who you know, who was who were the main players and and somewhat conveniently, not perfectly. I mean if it was a novel, I I would take I would have changed things around a little bit more, but basically you have a couple of prominent figures, Rafe Pomerantz and Jim Hansen who follow the issue through the entire decade and then various other figures come in and out as it goes along. Um, but it was, that part of it was sort of a mechanical question of, you know, if you want to write about, say, the Toronto Climate Conference, well, you need to, uh, you, you need to follow a, a person. One of the characters has to be there. So there was trying to figure out, well, who was at the conference? Who am I writing? You know, so so that kind of thing was more of a mechanical puzzle. But the basic, the basic conceit was that if you, if you go back to this period, it allows for a much broader uh, reckoning with with the, the problem.
0: And the reason Sugi and I are asking you about the sort of structuring of this and the use of characters is that, you know, this is LitHub, but we have a lot of, you know, re- uh, listeners who are either writers or want to be writers. Um, and, and you wrote a really interesting essay uh, around the time that Odds Against Tomorrow came out saying that while nonfiction writers do a good job of writing facts about climate change, you wanted to use fiction to write about what it was doing to our hearts. But the way you talk about this piece and the way I think this piece uses character in some of the literary nonfiction techniques that were developed by writers like John McPhee, you know, uh, is is what makes the story stick. You know, that it is Pomerantz and we get the family life of Hanson in certain ways. I'm, is that a deliberate choice on your part?
2: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I believe fundamentally in the power of narrative to to open up a more profound consideration of of you know, our greatest social or, or public problems. And I think the way it, it does that is by, by, by placing these problems, these vast overwhelming problems into intimate personal terms. And, and I do think that novels are the ideal form for this because with a novel, you know, the, the novelist can take you into the character's deepest thoughts and, and inner life um, and a novel can track that exchange that has to take place in every one of us between you know the social issues of the day and our and our innermost selves. Um, with narrative nonfiction, you you can attempt the same thing, and and I think in its best form, you can you can achieve um, a similar result. But there are also limits to how far you can go. I mean, you can ask a person, as a reporter, what he or she was thinking in a certain moment, right? But it's a bit more difficult or, you know, what was going on in your life at this time. And you can you can do that pretty deeply if, if they're willing to participate. Um, but it's more difficult to create a full a full portrait. of. Or you can just
0: make it up like Truman Capote.
2: Yeah, well, that's I mean, if you want to really get into that. It's not Truman. It's not just Truman Capote. It's basically every work of, um, of, of of narrative journalism that we hold up as sort of creating the form that was written before. The advent of New York New Yorker fact checking. Well, I mean, well,
0: John would John McPhee would take exception to that because he always was very he didn't like it that to sort of claim yeah,
2: that John he
0: Mc- would remember these jailhouse conversations that he had with the guy swimming cold blood.
2: Yeah, I would I would I, I would keep him out of it. I think that's fair <laughs> um, fair enough. But he also writes it's he also kind of does a different thing. There's not as much of that kind of of character scene narrative um at at least when he's not a character and you don't get inside of his own
0: i don't know i mean the the book that i was thinking of that you know he wrote i we don't have to keep we may not end up keeping this in but you know encounters with the arch druid is kind of a really remarkable narrative and it's about brower who's mentioned in your piece um yeah and he he pairs him with his sort of loyal enemies, you know, in different settings. Oh, it's
2: fantastic! Yeah. No, it's a great book, but you and you get you get Brower's thinking. Um, this is but, the head
0: of the Sierra Club we're talking about. Yeah.
2: yeah, and also the founder of Friends of the Earth, where Rafe Pomerantz right. left, and 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 Brower and him had a whole falling out basically when he left, um, or before he left, Friends of the Earth at the beginning part of the '80s, um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about Brower, but but in terms of McPhee, yes, I think he does that. I, I would distinguish between that book, which I think is is was one of my favorite nonfiction uh, books, really, um, and books like the kind of books that that Capote wrote, or or Gay Talese, who I also love, or even you know Norman Mailer or or um, Joseph Mitchell, where you get into these. Tom Wolfe, certainly, where you get into these long internal monologues
0: right.
2: that are that are that we're made to think are accurate, you know, that we have to you have to go along with. Right. Um, so it's not just saying this is what Brower thought about this and he was I- irritated about that. It's it's really it's really novelistic First, almost, you know, really close third person, long extended internal monologues. And. Not to mention all the other stuff, like, you know, long conversations that you know the reporter didn't witness. Right. You're just bullshitting. I know,
0: I mean, McPhee yeah. for, in Levels of the Game said that when he, that he gave Arthur Ashe's thoughts, but only because he would watch a tape of the entire match with Arthur Ashe he would ask him, What were you thinking here? That was the only yeah. way that he was able to do thoughts.
2: Yeah. I mean, Dr- George Plimpton is maybe not, you know, or I would be, do, I, I had literally. a revelation reading Plimpton because, of course, he's, he's not saying, you know, you, of course, he's not saying that he's he's writing the same kind of journalism, really. But on the other hand, he was publishing the, these pieces in in major, you know, periodicals that the other writers were publishing in it was subject to the same kind of scrutiny editorially. And I was reading through his work recently, which is which is wonderful. But there, it's so obvious that there's wholesale inventions. And I, it just made me, you know, long, in, entire books, really, um, the golf book, right? um, long, long scenes that are, are just clearly made up. And, you know, they're funny, but, but he's using the, you know, he uses the, the, the trust that a reader places in nonfiction. You know, he exploits it, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and it did make me reflect, like, wow, if he could get away with this, inventing whole scenes uh then surely you know tom wolf or or norman mailer could get away with inventing dialogue you know or or detail and then the other thing that i was i mean to to bring it back to this piece i was i was reading a lot of historical popular history basically i mean that's 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 essentially the genre i guess that you would you would say this is written in it's a close third person narrative about um, these characters and and uh, I was trying to see, I was trying to see, well, what does, you know, someone like a David McCullough do? Um, you know, what, what do these popular historians do when they're writing about periods that are much farther in the past than I was writing about? And it's honestly, it's the same thing. I mean, there's there's inferences, but, you know, the level of detail, the, the sun dappled the blinds in, inside John Adams study, and and the you know the leaves you know blew against the wind things like that I mean not to pick on McCullough, but but you see this throughout the genre it's just allowed um, and yeah he probably found weather records or something you know there's probably something there but there's a different level of 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 reality or suspension of disbelief that's permitted within that genre at least still um, but I didn't have the luxury of doing that because I was writing for the Times um, so there's certain liberties that I think are taken and are accepted uh still within that that form that are not are no longer accepted in magazine writing
1: that's interesting i mean i feel like for me i feel like we're essentially talking about you know can you report free and direct discourse yeah right um and i think one of the most interesting recent examples of this is kate boo's book um
0: i was just going to bring that up that's a good idea
1: Which is, um, you know, where at the end of it, right, she erases herself from that whole book and sort of you read it and then um, people will sort of think, you know, how did she get all of these thoughts of these, particularly the women and children who live in in the slum? And, you know, then it turns out she gave them cameras, she interviewed them about their thoughts endlessly, and that these were people who actually had not been ever asked about their thoughts um, or hadn't been asked that much, and certainly not repeatedly. And it's sort of, I don't know, for me sort of, the standard, at least at the the end of that book, seems to seems to set for reporting free and direct discourse and that kind of reconstruction um, was just really impressive to me. And I thought um, really moving and did a good job of bringing consciousness to bear on a set of people who, of course, have always had it but are rarely reported on in that way. Um, and I can't help but think as we're having this conversation, you know, I know that um you know your article has been optioned and is going to be a TV series. and it'll be so interesting to see how right some of the stuff that we're talking about the consciousness, the feelings, the thoughts, the the way that these characters um, slash people um behaved will be reconstructed in that
2: medium yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, you raise a lot of interesting points. I mean, I, I haven't read her book. I know it's everyone loves it and I and I know she's she's a brilliant journalist i I think it it comes down to there's sort of levels, you know, and, and the New York times fact checking, uh, team has one level. Then there's the level that you can get away with publishing, you know, with a nonfiction, a major nonfiction press. Then there's, you know, and, and you kind of go from there. Um, and I don't, you know, the, the level of scrutiny, I think, I think you can write honestly, Mm -hmm. I think you can, you can do some of these tricks take advantage of some of these tricks and still write an honest story. If you talk to Gay, you know, Gay Talese will say, uh, how do you know these people? You know, he had these long internal monologues of, of characters. Right. And he would say, well, I talked to them for years. and um, And they told me what, and I asked them what they thought. And that's what they told me. And I believe that, but I also... Don't believe that he's verbatim transcribing their internal monologue from any given, po- you know, so it's, you You know, I don't think you could get away with that in the New York Times, for instance, which is not to say that the New York Times is the ideal model. It's just more about, it's a spectrum. And I think you can write honestly. I, I think George Plimpton was writing honestly, too, frankly, mm-hmm. even though it's, some of it's obviously fantasy, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and and same with Tom Wolf. Same thing, you know, well, write stuff, you know. Um. So. So. Anyway. So. It's all. But. If, I mean. To. To give one example. For instance, of the times I had. I had so many. There are so many moments I'd. I would have loved to have included in the piece. Personal details. Human details. Where one character remembering a scene that took place. You know, thirty-five years ago, and maybe didn't seem very significant at the time was just a meeting, say. Mm-hmm. Um, Remember something. Uh, and and remember something about a scene in which other people were involved. The Times mm-hmm. won't let me use that anecdote unless one of the other people remember it exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. So I have to call those people and say, do you remember that when so-and-so made some joke and, then, and nobody laughed? And people are like, no, I mean, that sounds right, but... Sounds like something he would say, but I have no memory. It was a meeting I didn't I'd have no memory of thirty-five years ago, so I can't use it. You know, so that so I, I would in a book version I would be happy to use that. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't feel bad at all about using that anecdote. But in the in the magazine you can't right. basically every publication has to make the decision of where the line is. And I think right. the Times are probably the New Yorkers, right, at the extreme.
1: Well, for, for our listeners who haven't read um, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, I would totally recommend it. And particularly at the end, there's a, a discussion of how she cross-tracked all of this stuff. And of course, um, you will have also mentioned a number of books, which we will link to for our listeners. And I don't know that we can nerd out about, about, uh, nerd out about this much longer without... Yeah, sorry, um, I I no, 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 no. I, mean, I, I love nerding out about this, but I think it would be a shame to do it without having you read from the terrific article, which has an example of the narrative technique that Witt was talking about. Um, The scene at the Don Cesar Hotel in Florida, it's 1980, and Ray Pomerantz has gathered a bunch of scientists and politicians and reps of the fossil fuels industry to recommend action to stop climate change to a national commission on air quality. So I was wondering if you could set that scene and then read us a passage from that discussion.
2: Sure. Uh, yeah, so this takes place in this this very peculiar resort hotel, pink resort hotel in Florida, where two dozen of the of the nation's top policy experts, um, big thinkers, uh, Rafe Pomerance is there. A, a guy from Exxon is there. Some politicians gather together at the at the um, request of, of Congress to try to formulate for the first time climate. Legislation. So Pomerantz, after a while of this, a couple of days of this, is, begins to get fed up. <clears throat> he says, Now, if everyone wants to sit around and wait until the wor- world warms up more than it has warmed up since there have been humans around, fine. But I would like to have a shot at avoiding it. Most everyone else seemed content to sit around. Some of the attendees confused uncertainty around the margins of the issue, whether warming would be three or four degrees Celsius in 50 or 75 years, for uncertainty about the severity of the problem. As Gordon MacDonald liked to say, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would rise. The only question was when. The lag between the emission of a gas and the warming it produced could be several decades. It was like adding an extra blanket on a mild night. It took a few minutes before you started to sweat." Yet Slade, the director of the Energy Department's carbon dioxide program, considered the lag a saving grace. If changes did not occur for a decade or more, he said, those in the room couldn't be blamed for failing to prevent them. So what was the problem? You're the problem, Pomerantz said. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the lag between cause and effect, it was unlikely that humankind would detect hard evidence of warming until it was too late to reverse it. The lag would doom them. The U.S. has to do something to gain some credibility, he said. So it is a moral stand, Slade replied, sensing an advantage. Call it whatever. Besides, Pomerantz added, they didn't have to ban coal tomorrow. A pair of modest steps could be taken immediately to show the world that the United States was serious. The implementation of a carbon tax and increased investment in renewable energy. Then the United States could organize an international summit meeting to address climate change. This was his closing plea to the group. The next day, they would have to draft policy proposals. But when the group reconvened after breakfast, they immediately became stuck on a sentence in their prefatory paragraph declaring that climatic changes were, quote, likely to occur. Will occur, proposed Lauerman, the Stanford engineer. What about the words highly likely to occur, Scoville asked. Almost sure, said David Rose, the nuclear engineer from MIT. Almost surely, another said. Changes of an undetermined, changes as yet of a little understood nature Highly or extremely likely to occur, Pomerant said. Almost surely to occur? No, <laughs> Pomerant said. I would like to make one statement, said Anne Marie Crocetti, a public health scholar who sat on the National Commission on Air Quality and had barely spoken all week. I've noticed that very often when we as scientists are cautious in our statements, everyone else misses the point because they don't understand our qualifications. As a non-scientist, said Tom McPherson, the Florida legislator, I really concur. Yet these two dozen experts who agreed on the major points and had made a commitment to Congress could not draft a single paragraph.
0: Oh, thank you, I guess. Uh, (laughs) And that conversation is just like one of my department meetings and we're trying to fix our bylaws to allow credit for online publications or something like that, which is, you know, fine for an English department, but depressing if the fate of the world is at stake.
2: Yeah, I mean, what's more depressing is that we're still having that conversation some 40 years later.
1: So speaking of internal politicking, it's been interesting after your article came out uh, to read some of the reactions to the pieces. And there's been a little bit of backlash from places that I would have thought would be friendlier readers like the Atlantic site or Vox and some other places. And some people have observed that lay people. Versus long-time observers of climate change or science writers have tended to have different reactions to kind of these scenes, the, your thesis. And I'm curious about um, how the reaction to the article has been for you, what you've thought of it, if that has surprised you, if there have been criticisms that have given you pause or made you think differently about the article, what it's been like to be read on this.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, surprised by the tone, but not... But not nothing that made me think differently about the article because nobody has challenged a single fact in, in the article. Mm-hmm. Well, or that's what I noticed. <laughs> substantive evidence for their claims that, that my interpretation of the historical information is wrong. Um, I mean, the Atlantic piece, which is, I mean, you said pieces started coming out after publication. I'd correct you to say the pieces started coming out before publication, um, before it could be read, uh, attacking it. Uh, so the Atlantic piece just filed just hours after the 30,000-word piece went online is, is, I think, a good example of what I'm talking about. It was written by a climate blogger who, despite uh, summoning no evidence except for details taken from my own article, claimed that I've misunderstood my own research <laughs> of two years. Um, now, if you if you read past, I think it's important to address, I mean, if, you, if you've if you the points, I mean, if you read past all the, the sort of pomposity and grandstanding, you'll see he makes two claims. The first is that the Republican Party deserves more blame for preventing global warming policy in the 1980s. Right. Um, as I write, you know, certain figures within the party deserve a lot of blame, especially John Sununu, who I write about at great length. Um, but all I argue is that our failure during the decade cannot be uh, laid entirely at the door of the Republican Party, because many prominent Republicans fought hard during this period and sincerely to push for policy solutions. Now, today, the party has adopted denialism as its, as its party line. But the closing of the ranks didn't begin until James Hansen's hearing uh, in 1988. Uh, but again, the blogger offers no evidence to dispute any of that. Um, his other point is that the oil and gas industry had already begun conspiring to preach climate denialism during the 1980s, and not in the 1990s, as has been amply documented in in, in my piece and and plenty you know elsewhere in books and and all that. Um, the only evidence he musters for that claim is an obscure paper from the early 80s by a soil scientist who a decade later would become one of the leading industry hacks uh, sure it did so But the paper he cites gains uh, gained no influence uh, or attention at the time and had not, nothing to do no connection with industry. Mm-hmm. So if he has any other evidence to support his his argument, I'd, I'd urge him to come forward with it. It would make a dramatic, uh, it would mark a dramatic development in the historical study of climate change and could be used in all these lawsuits that are now underway. But I, I suspect it's more likely that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, I could I could go through the Vox article in the yeah. same way. I mean, it's it's very hard for me to take this kind of thing seriously because I don't feel that that they took their assignments seriously. Um, it's, you know, there's a failure to really offer any evidence or to grapple with the evidence presented in the piece. Um, but it's not for me to question what motivations might lead activist writers to make these kinds of cynical, intellectually vacuous arguments. Well, I think um, a
0: lot of times people think, God damn it, he got a big piece in the New York Times. That pisses me off. Why wasn't it me? That's just be how the writer mind would work, at least. That's well, how my mind works sometimes. I'll let you speak to the, writer,
2: <laughs> to the writer's mind. I mean, one observation I, I can make is that there's an enormous amount of fear out there, uh, fear that I think their voices aren't being heard or their or their argument, their preferred arguments aren't succeeding. Um, and so any effort to enlarge in the conversation comes to be seen as a threat. Um, whereas fundamentally, I, I as I said, there's nothing they really disagree with me about that I could tell. Um, you guys seem so, like you're on
0: the same team to me. Yeah. And so then I guess
2: the argument then becomes a sort of more meta argument, which is, is essentially why don't you write? the, the piece about, you know, the subject that I want you to write about, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, you know, the 90s, what started, it began in the 90s and what continues to this day, you know, why don't you write a profile of Scott Pruitt or something? And and I would just say, I mean, someone wrote to me, why don't you write about Standing Rock? And it's like, well,
1: <laughs> sure. So it's a different article. I mean,
2: yeah. I don't know, just I, like, I it's. Can point you, I can point you to some excellent articles that have been written about. Why don't you stuff.
0: write about Standing Rock, guy? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. And so it's. I was really surprised
1: by how many articles there were about your article. Um, um, And I mean, I don't know, I guess, um, like, I can see how people who have been writing about climate change for a long time have very formed opinions about it and maybe have very specific opinions about languages relationship to this kind of like what kind of language this kind of reporting uses or how the framing works. but. I don't know. That seems like something about which people can reasonably disagree, and just sort of the
2: the number of the number of articles was like a little weird. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think part of the issue is that that there's a general sense out there which is totally warranted that the issue does not receive the attention uh, it deserves, and so when a major piece in a prominent publication comes along, of course, it's going to get a lot of scrutiny, and I was you know prepared for that. Uh, and I certainly was worried that 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 in the thirty thousand words that I might have made some factual errors. But honestly, like, there's n- been nothing in there that that has any that it really has caused me to even to pause. And so mm-hmm. then it ch- changes. It, so my first response when pieces start coming out instantly was like, Oh Jesus, did I? I know that I would I be so scary. Yeah, that I must
0: situation. have messed up
2: something fundamental. But then you look at the actual arguments, and they're basically written for an audience of people who clearly haven't read the piece. And, and, and often it seems they're written by people who haven't read the piece. So its then it gets into this other then I started to understand what this is this is part of a different thing. And um, you know and I can't if, if activists want to use the piece to you know gain more attention or to make their arguments more vociferously in a more public way, you know, God bless them, love them, go for it.
0: I would just yeah. say I have, a, I have a parable that once actually the writer Dan Woodrell, uh, who I talked to a lot and every, I was going to publish a, a war novel. Um, and you and I have an editor in common. So I was going to publish it with Sean McDonald. And every time a war novel would come out in the waiting for me to have that war novel published, I would call Dan and be like, all right, that's it. I'm, I'm screwed. That that's this so-and-so wrote a war novel. I can't. It's just the end of it, you know. And he'd be like, look, the more people write about it, the better. It's not a zero sum game for any particular topic. You know, there's always room. And if people write about it and are successful, then more books are going to be written on that subject. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, you you um, you mentioned that the, this film and television thing, which, by the way, could easily not happen. It also could be a film and not a series, but it's all speculative at this point. But but there, I know from having the conversations that I did in the aftermath of, of the piece that um, look like people who work in hollywood are des- they they care a lot about this issue and and if you think they haven't been trying to figure out a way to to do you know a, a big climate change film or series um you know you have another thing coming they've been trying for 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 decades um some you know some very powerful people in in hollywood have been trying for decades to do it and yeah there are a few examples here and there there's like the day after tomorrow i guess would be the most pop version there's been documentaries um and there's al Gore's films and all of that but but i think there's been a great hunger to try to understand the problem in human terms and i think that's part of the that i feel like is part of the response that the piece has gotten not just in hollywood but but elsewhere that it the the effort at least to try to put these large abstract complicated issues into uh, intimate, personal, intimate terms. And I felt, um, you know, and, and and the the only way I I felt that I could do it was, was to go back in time. But I think that, that what it, the response has told me, which has been, um, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, enthusiastic, um, and supportive has been that there's a deep, need out there to engage with the issue in a more profound way than is now being done. It needs to become a moral issue in the same way that, you know, civil rights in the civil rights era had became a moral issue, the same way gay marriage became a moral issue. Um you don't see major legislation and major political action until there's an overwhelming moral argument that that goes beyond partisan politics. We will get there. The question is just, do we get there as a result of, of suffering and pain from, from the devastation of climate change? Or do we get there because we're able to articulate uh, a sense of moral urgency to act that goes beyond uh, politics uh, and, and speaks to the hearts of enough people um, to, to force uh, major transformational change?
0: Thanks for coming on the show, Nathaniel. And congratulations, as we Thank mentioned, uh, the, the expanded version of the, we haven't mentioned this yet, but an expanded version of this story is going to be published as a book by uh, MCD uh, at FSG. And it's been optioned as a TV series, as we have mentioned. So we'll encourage our listeners to keep an eye out for that.
1: And for Odds Against Tomorrow and your most recent novel, King
0: Zeno, out this year. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. And now we're excited to welcome Juliana Spar. Juliana is a professor at Mills College and the author of nine books of poetry, including most recently, That Winter the Wolf Came and Well Then There Now. She's also an editor and activist and someone who has been thinking about the relationship between writing and activism for a long time. We're so happy to have you with us.
1: Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, we were wondering if you would start off the conversation by reading from your poem, a destruction story and telling us a little bit about how you came to write it. It was published in Harper's in Maine. We will also link to it with our episode publication.
3: Sure. I was working on an, an imitation of this Ashbury poem, um, that where he goes through like all the rivers and it's a very flat poem. And I was trying to work on something around that using, um, animals that had the names of nation states in there in, in the way that we call them. Um, and then it just got really boring, and I wasn't sure what I was doing. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I think that's kind of like where it comes out of, because it still has a lot of the the national the nationally named um, animals or the w- by their common names in some way. I kind of kept that part of it. Well, also, though, originally I was kind of complaining about the idea that um, an animal would end up with a nation state and their common name, which felt particularly unfair because. Um, the animal kingdom doesn't really like the nation state, I imagine, or doesn't know the nation <laughs> <Yeah>. state. <laughs> um, and um, and I was also interested in all those moments where animals become like emblematic of a nation. Uh, you know, the bald eagle of the United States, um, which I also imagine um, the bald eagle being annoyed by. Um, you know, having a much longer history than the history of the United States and having to be saddled with a kind of metaphoric relationship to this thing without its consent. (laughs) Um, But, um, and then, you know, and then I kept, I was also kind of thinking a lot of the time about like the limitations of art um, and which I think the poem is kind of like a complaint, about in some way um about like how art can disappoint us like we think of it often as this kind of like liberal um lefty project and it's something more complicated than that um which was something that i was really thinking a lot about right after trump was elected and there was all these moments where um everyone was like oh writers start writing you got to get writing you got to write the resistance in some way um which felt weird to me in part that um literature was presumed to have like a kind of um, electoral college affiliation um, in a way that had it in the past. Um, And that also that it would actually save us um, from something, um, which it seems to have never done. Um, So a destruction story. In 1963, Oscar Brown Jr. wrote a song about a snake. It's an obvious sort of snake in the grass story. A woman finds a cold snake on the road takes him home, feeds him milk and honey, and then if she holds him to her bosom, he bites her as he lectures her that snakes bite. The snake gets the refrain in the song, take me in, tender woman, take me in for heaven's sake, take me in, tender woman, sighs the snake. Brown took the story from Aesop, and Aesop's telling of it, a man is a knife. He warms up the snake by putting him in his coat, But when Brown sings the story, he reverses the genders and turns it into the song into one about all those things men do to women, not just the violence, the rapes, the slaps to the face and yanks to the arms, but also yelling, belittlement, wolf whistles too, the long, tired history women know all too well. His voice is all slithery as he sings the snake upbeat and so all the more ominous. Al Wilson sings Brown's song in 1968 with the heavy beat and the fast tempo of Northern Soul. His voice squeaks not on the snake, but on the woman. It might be more confession than complaint. It might be that the snake is Wilson pleading to be taken in. Oscar Brown Jr. always thought that music was his activism. So it is easy if one listens not only to hear the divisions between genders, but what it means to be black and grow up as Brown did, as Wilson did, having to fight for the milk and honey. In 2016, Donald Trump treats the song like it is a poem. Sometimes he claims it was written by Al Wilson in the 1990s. Sometimes he attributes it to Al Green. It is about people coming into our country, he says. He reads it line-break heavy and often pauses between words, his hand pointing for further emphasis as he multiplies the word vicious. And his understanding, the woman is the nation, the snake is all Syrians, and the poem is a series of easy mottos. Evil for good is often the return. The lesson is not to expect a reward from the wicked. Learn not to take pity on a scoundrel. The greatest kindness will not bind the ungrateful. Beware how you entertain traitors. What is this moment when snakes and women defend walls, fences, borders of all sorts, it's been said before that there's something that doesn't love a wall. Surely snake is something that doesn't love it. With women, I admit it's more complicated. But it's not just snake that doesn't love a wall. Neither Kryzik horse nor Uzbek black goat loves the barbed wire of the Kryzikstan Uzbekistan fence. And the Turkoman horse and the Kazakh horse, both known for their stamina don't love the barbed wire fence surrounded by unmarked landmines that is the Turkmenistan-Uzbekistan barrier. And even while the Spanish imperial eagle flies over, even while the Moroccan jerd scambles underneath the fences of the Syota and Mejila borders, all of them topped with barbed wire, monitored by underground cables that are connected to spotlights, noise, and movement sensors, even to tear gas canisters, canisters still no love. Same with the much more modest fence along the Yalu River, even as it does nothing to stop the Chinese egret from perching in the Korean spruce. The Afghan bull and the Egyptian nightjar always scatter without love when the heavily armed Uzbek soldiers patrol near the two barbed wire fences, one of them electrified, both with landmines in between. And the Arabian leopards split by the barbed wire fence of the anti-Arab Emirates Oman barrier also have no love. Both the Malaysian ant, despite its fighting, take no prisoners and sacrifice the self-explosive tendencies, and the secretive and nocturnal Bornean bay cat have no love for the Brunei Malaysia security fence, and neither the Indian Eagle Owl nor the Bengal Tiger has love for the barbed wire and concrete of the India-Bangladesh barrier. The Israeli West Bank apartheid wall is not loved by the Palestine Viper, nor would it be by the Israeli Painted Frog. There are more, but I don't need to go on, right?
0: Thank you very much. Um, That poem brings together a lot of stuff that we've talked about on this show over the last year, really, including the wall. Um, It's a really amazing piece. Uh, When did you start thinking about putting this together? I mean, did you hear, uh, were you working on the animals and the idea of the wall first and then heard President Trump talking about this uh, little this poem that he gives at his rallies or, or was it the other way around?
3: Um, well, I was working on, I was working on the animals and the nation state. And I was thinking also, I mean, I was thinking about the wall a lot, um, you know, mainly because one of the wall would have these huge, obviously ecological, impact and there had been a like like some attention in the media to that the the literal jaguar called el jefe which is i think it might be one of the few jaguars that has come back into the united states um from mexico um and that the wall would be built through his territory in some sense so he was kind of again like you know he's the you know, what do they call it? The charismatic megafauna,
0: Um,
3: (laughs) you know, that's, you know, people were interested in at the time. Um, And so I was, I was thinking on that. And I was at the same time, um, do I mean, I heard Trump do that poem, which I became interested in because it's a poem. um, And because one of the things that was kind of repeatedly said about Trump, right, that he's anti, he's anti-literature and that literature is liberal. And yet, he he kept like the the poem seemed to be playing really well like he, he was doing it again and again and in some form and then I just started I was at the same time um reading some on the Blackstone Rangers for a scholarly book that I've been working on with a couple of other people that's kind of about um uh national funding of um kind of community arts projects um, and it just had that weird moment of overlap that you, that you sort of fall into at that moment, mm-hmm. um, in which I realized that, um, it was an, you know, an Oscar Brown song, um, that he was using and that, you know, Oscar Brown had had this like weird kind of other history in like the sixties and seventies, um, um, around doing kind of community art that was, you know, supposed to kind of like, um, um, make sure that the Blackstone Rangers, um, weren't going to meet up with the Black Panthers and riot. Like that was the, the literal intention of like a lot of that funding. Um, which just had again that, you know, that overlap between like, what is, what is the role of art in national in the national arena in some form? That's so interesting because also I think is primarily a
1: prose writer. Um, I was so struck by this poem, how it handles time and space, and also just struck struck by Trump's presence, because for the reasons that you say, that you know, people sort of describe him as anti-art, and I think I've gone to some pains probably to largely not watch his rallies, and so I was sort of like, oh, Trump, Trump is going and reading a poem, and then this poem travels through time, and so many fiction writers I know tend to write about events so long after they happen, and so to see Trump in a piece of art um, I was curious about how you thought about handling him. This, this poem has a lot of names. And when I think about writing about Trump, I think, you know, his capacity to sort of, he's such a known character, right? How can, how does he sort of take things over? What is his role in the natural environment?
3: Um Yeah. I mean, you might be saying something about the difference between the between poetry and the novel in which there, I mean, there, there, there's not an occasional novel, but there is a tradition of an occasional poem, right. Um, which probably has a lot to do with the shortness of the poem in some way. Like it just, you know, it gets published, like can be published kind of quicker in some sense, or doesn't require that, you know, like the, the large amount of time also to kind of write it that the, that the novel does. Um, and I think, I, I mean, it might just be something like as simple as that. I'm not sure I would ever write a novel that had a Trump in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. just, but I don't, I don't write the novel that much anyway. So. Right. <laughs> um, well, I guess I was wondering whether you were sort of, I think that I always
1: want to think of Trump as like, and of course, this is a fantasy. I would like to confine him to the smallest amount of time possible. And in this poem, you tell a long story and he's in it. He's part of this big history. And he's in a, the same poem as Aesop. So when you think about constructing him as a character in the poem, or as a persona in the poem, how do you how did you think about depicting him?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, okay, yeah, I don't. I had that memo and you were like, I try to think about Trump as little as possible. I do also. Um, (laughs) And and one of the terrible, one of my kind of constant jokes about the terribleness of this moment is like, it's really a terrible time um, to be an anarchist. who's become addicted to kind of like, Understanding electoral politics because I originally, I, I feel like I originally became an anarchist so I could stop thinking about the terribleness of US electoral politics. And yet I've been really kind of sucked in in this moment. And I mean, it has, I mean, I think it has, there's all these specific stories I could tell about that, which is something about like Trump as, you know, in part an antagonism to classic electoral system. Like, so it's kind of interesting watching the kind of train wreck. Um, that's not a train wreck um, or, you know, at the same time, like, like the complications become really interesting to me, although I'm deeply annoyed at my interest in it. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to go back. I mean, I can't wait till he gets out of office so I can go back to ignoring all those horrible people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds very familiar.
0: So um, one of the things you're involved with, uh, you know, eco ecopoetics Is it eco-poetics or eco-poetics? Probably never seen. Probably <laughs> eco, um, yeah. so as as we're reading about uh, eco poetics and getting ready to talk to you, um, I realize there's a lot of debate about the definition of what eco poetics is. You know, and in the inaugural issue of eco poetics, you describe it as house making, as a house making. Maybe you could talk to our uh, expand on that definition a bit for our listeners and tell us how eco poetics. You know what what makes it and how does it use form?
3: Yeah. Um... You know, like there was a debate, I think it might be like even as many as 15 years old now, although it kind of still goes on in which, you know, like there's this old, there's this very long tradition of nature poetry. um, That's actually a really significant part of the content of poetry. There's a lot of poetry about nature and there's a lot of poetry about love. um, And, um, you know, and then there's some other poetry, some poetry about some other stuff. (laughs) And um, so, you know, it has this really long, you know, like, you know, the original, a lot of, a lot of the early poems, which, you know, would be depending on various cultures, were often like lists of animals or, you know, lists of things that humans interacted with and could eat um, and kind of had like the chant often does that. Um, and I mean, I, and, you know, and then we kind of, you know, the nature poem moved into the kind of like lyric Western tradition in some way then it was like a. Yeah, exactly. Um, It was, you know, it was often quiet. It was recollected and tranquility. um, And um, and then around the kind of like early aughts, there started to be this just this kind of like um, it felt like almost like a parody of a a, a scholarly discussion in which like Mary Oliver was a nature poet and she was bad um, because, um, you know, she privileged the. The human, and it was not systemic, and it celebrated nature, it didn't discuss its its destruction. And um, at, that, at that point, um, a lot of people that had long thought of themselves as, as avant-garde or experimental poets began to think about what it would mean to use kind of like the forms of modernism, which, you know, were very much about urban culture and not about the natural world, um, to talk more about the natural world sy- more systemically. And that kind of got the term kind of like eco-poetics um, and there's still people that are like doing I think like like I think there's something about that that's stuck. Like there's been like a lot of like systemic experimental writing um about ecological destruction. Um, you know, as you would expect, because we're in a we're in a time of um in which we can very literally see ecological destruction in a way that we might have been able to ignore it in the past. Um it's become kind of impossible to ignore. I was talking to a friend this morning who um gotten most of the way through a PhD in English. And
1: she, I told her I was gonna talk to you about eco-poetics and she immediately asked what its relationship was to eco-criticism.
3: And I couldn't quite answer that question, but I wonder if you can. I mean, I would say eco-poetics is the poetry and then eco-criticism is the criticism that discuss both eco-poetics, but also, you know, things like Thoreau and um, things like that. But I mean, e- eco-criticism is very much informed by that. Like, are we gonna be able to learn something Mm -hmm. from the literature right about how about about ecology about how not to destroy the environment Um, or you know that was its original intent is that if we got better if we had if we had a better understanding or if we had better images we might we might not be so idiotic okay (laughs) yeah
1: well that's always the hope isn't it but um (laughs) well so listening to you talk about this definition i'm i'm reminded of whitman but do you consider him sort of a predecessor to this
3: yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, certainly, and um, I mean, often people um, bring back Snyder. Interestingly, oh, interesting. Um,
0: yeah,
3: you know, because Bay that, Area guy. Like, yeah, Bay Area guy, and he, I mean, but he was doing that—that that early. Um, you know, he was doing a lot of work on the, um, you know, deforestation um, in some way. That was kind of very systemic nature poems.
1: Okay. That's, that's great. And so, and you were also talking about privileging the human. I spent um, last fall when we were starting this podcast, I was in Berlin and I was in a fellowship where um, I was also with AL Steiner and we had a lot of great conversations about just kind of um, centering the human or or not and sort of Anthropocene um, ways of thinking, or as I think in one of your pieces of work, you refer to the misanthropocene. And I was wondering about um, a, a term, which I loved, but just sort of Thinking about, like, that was sort of the first time I had really thought about that and how that appeared in my own work. And how does the Anthropocene or the post or the Misanthropocene play into how you think about ecopolitics?
3: Well, the critique of the term anthropo- Anthropocene has been that it should have been capitalocene, right? I mean, that's been like, um... Huh. You know, an argument made by many different people that it, that it kind of forgives um, in some way capitalism, which I don't actually think it does. Um, but I mean, I, I mean, the other story about like how I came to become interested in kind of ecology or representations of like flora and fauna and work is through kind of trying to think about like, um, you know, what is the impact of capitalism or where do we see, you know, where would we locate like an anti-capitalism within poetry, Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like that that would be one you know potential way to begin to think about it is that ego poetry was also trying to think about, you know, the ecological destruction that's been caused by capitalism in some way. and and I kind of feel like a lot of the work around the Anthropocene has been trying to do that too, okay. um, or the humanities work around it.
0: I have a question that's a little bit more uh, process oriented, which is, um, there was a point in my life when I wanted to improve like my vocabulary. And so a friend of mine had decided he was reading the dictionary and like writing down words that fit under certain categories, you know, like words for rocks or words for the heavens, you know, and he found a lot of cool words that way. And I imitated him. And so I always I don't get to use those as much now that I'm a novelist. Uh, And I I wondered if you how you found the animals in this story, the Egyptian nightjar and the Afghan vole. These wonderfully named animals, but also obscure animals that I hadn't heard of before. How did you go to look for them?
3: Oh, I mean, it's it's all the internet. Like I was just <laughs> often, you know, entering like Afghan animal, <laughs> oh, no. man, and a lot of. I mean, I mean, also in, potentially interesting is that a lot of. Um, I mean, I think they're just probably made by citizens in some way, but there's a lot of kind of like national animal web pages. Um, and so like, there'll be like, you know, like all the animals from Malaysia, um, that someone has kind of collected and put photographs, um, next to, um, I also relied really heavily on this website of endangered animals or at risk animals. It's called like the red list. I think you are sort
1: of questioning in the poem, what art is to do. And when I was reading the poem, I was thinking back to those conversations I had with Steiner, um, who is an artist who had, who had showed me, who had showed all of us, um, you know, at one point we were just watching a video of, of trees falling repeatedly. And it was so interesting, like the violence I eventually felt like it committed on me, like the way that, um, I actually couldn't stand to watch another tree fall after a certain point in watching, <laughs> watching this video. I was like, I have to like, actually just going to have to get up and leave. Cause I'm starting to feel like I'm in pain. And, um, I don't know, like sort of when you think about the relationship between activism and writing and what is it we expect art to do? Why do we engage in art? um, You know, you wander around on the Internet looking for the Malaysian animal, the Afghan animal, and we learn, we witness. And then there's this critique like that that doesn't do anything. Um, I wonder, especially after decades of writing about political subjects, what you think about that? Um, what you expect art to do and, and how eco poetics fits into your larger history of activism and writing.
3: I'm never convinced that um, art does more than represent. Like those people that are like, I'm going to make writing a poem my form of activism. I don't think that that's a very effective form of activism. Um, although I think it's, I don't think that that means that Poetry should not address things that um, people would often associate as kind of activist topics. Um, let's say ecological destruction um, as one example of them. I mean, poetry is going to, or art, or literature, or whatever you want, is all go, is going to. It just takes in what's around us in some way, and it kind of, at, you know, at best, is a spot. A place for thinking about them. Sometimes it gives us some pleasure. Um, sometimes it gives us some other ways to think. Um, but I'm not sure it kind of does does much around that. Which is kind of that moment where I'm, I mean I'm very hesitant around these moments where people are like, you know, we have to all get writing, and then we're gonna, you know, keep the keep democracy safe in some form. Um, and I'm just I'm just kind of like it just made, all that stuff makes me nervous. And in part it makes me nervous because Um, the history of something like just to take literature in general is um, you know it's way more aligned with the nation state than against it Um, you know and the nation state likes to use its resistance a lot Um, so it's it's even it's almost dangerous to begin to think that that relationship is like too close um, because it's, it's let them kind of at moments you know mollify social movements by Putting a lot of money into the production of art while at the same time, you know, continuing to um, not do anything about racist structural conditions. Um, and they, they would they quote unquote the evil they I mean, they would love it if we were all just writing poems all day. Right. Um, <laughs> that's easy.
0: <laughs> so you've lived in and, and written about several different places, <clears throat> including Hawaii, Um which has this kind of idealized image of beauty, although it's in the middle of, of having a hurricane also. Um, and in reality, uh, and, and in reality presents not only beauty, but also complex questions about identity and, and indigeneity. How did living in Hawaii and, and growing up in Ohio shape your connection to the environment and to writing?
3: I guess I would say that Hawaii is the place that, where I started to think about these issues more seriously. Um, I was really interested in Hawaii as a place, um, that's very, very beautiful, that also has one of the highest um, amount of invasive species, um, a location that also has um, a really high um, amount of um, plants and animals that are at risk. Um, And Hawaii is really clear that um, colonialism, you know, happened not just culturally, but also happened environmentally. And um, because the history of Hawaii is so kind of recent, Um, A lot of things that are like very invasive, you can even, um, they know the names of the person who brought it over, which has always been kind of fascinating to me. So when you read books about Hawaii's um, plants, sometimes they'll be like, you know, brought over in 1833 by John Smith on the boat (laughs) and he took it to Mexico. Um, And now it's all over the island. Um, And I mean, I was kind of really interested in that history. Um, the literature of Hawaii is very concerned about representations of Hawaii, not only culturally, but again, um, there's a lot of talk in Hawaii um, about what we, what was called like a 747 poem. And that was like the New Yorker poem um, written by someone that came over and vacationed in Hawaii who wrote about like the beautiful bougainvillea, which is another one of those invasive plants. Right. Um, you know, and then would get on the plane and go home, and you know, publish it somewhere, and um, without any kind of like attention to that that connection with colonialism in some way. And so, I mean, I was that that was really fascinating to me. Um, and when I was in Hawaii, I started just taking ethnobotany courses. I had a really strong ethnobotany program, but I also, I mean, I was Hawaii. I was kind of like, um, you know, like I didn't really, I, I was. I was very out of place. I was trying to understand it. And, um, that was one of the ways that I was trying to move through understanding it or, um, you know, what it meant to kind of be there. Um, that experience then went back and shaped some of my thinking about growing up in Ohio in some way, which I'm not sure I had like thought incredibly much about prior to that. Um, and I mean, I'm still kind of like kind of confused by, you know, the connections between those things in some way. I mean, you know, like there's these very superficial connections, which is like, there's a very intense localism in both places. Um, and, um, you know, they both have a kind of different, I, I wouldn't say, you know, a, an off the mapness that's kind of different in different ways. Um, but, um, there's a lot of, I mean, Hawaii is really interested in literature in a way that like that, That Midwest, like Ohio, just, you know, like it didn't really feel as important. Um, The representational questions about Ohio are not really much discussed would be one way to put it, whereas they're constantly discussed in Hawaii. Right.
1: Juliana, this is such a, such a helpful conversation and, and so great also to hear you read. And I wonder if we can ask you to conclude by reading a little bit more for us. I was thinking of Gentle Now, Don't Add to Heartache, which was in Tarpaulin Sky in 2005. But that poem seems really prescient and almost unbearably kind uh, in our current environment.
3: We come into the world. We come into the world and there it is. The sun is there, the brown of the river leading to the blue and the brown of the ocean is there. Salmon and eels are there moving between the brown and the brown and the blue. The green of the land is there. Elders and youngers are there. We come into the world and we are there. Fighting and possibility and love are there and we begin to breathe. We come into the world and there it is. We come into the world without and we breathe it in. We come into the world and begin to move between the brown and the blue and the green of it.
0: Juliana, thank you. And thanks so much for being on the show.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks very much. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And hey, talking about podcast apps, leave us a review on iTunes. We really, really need those to help other people find this show. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com the fiction-nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on our LitHub show page on Facebook at FNF and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading and welcome to UMKC MFA students Kelsey Beck and Steven Power. They'll be interning with us and co-producing the show this fall.